RoboBees with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. In today's episode, we'll be hearing about an insect-inspired robot that is the lightest vehicle to achieve untethered autonomous flight to date. From flies and ants to termites and cockroaches, insects have acted as inspiration for robot design for many years. And insect-inspired robots could be used in crop pollination, search and rescue missions, surveillance, as well as high-resolution weather, climate and environmental monitoring. At Harvard's Microrobotics Lab, a team have been looking at bees for inspiration to create the world's smallest flying robot, called RoboBee. Just half the size of a paperclip and weighing in at less than a tenth of a gram, this little robot flies using artificial muscles that make its wings flap when a voltage is applied. Postdoctoral fellow Feral Heldling is one of the minds behind this impressive feat. She spoke to our interviewer, Kate, about the challenges of building a robot at centimetre scale, including managing weight trade-offs with the need for integration of sensors and power electronics. Welcome to RoboHub Podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Farrell Helbling. I am a researcher at the Harvard Microrobotics Lab. Cool. Welcome to the show. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about your PhD work and postdoc work in the microrobotics lab? Yeah, so I work on the RoboBee project and what I focus on is trying to make the robot a little bit more autonomous. So adding the sensors and the electronics on board so that it can leave the laboratory environment and eventually move around outside. Cool, that sounds really awesome. Um, just to help us understand a little bit better, would you like to explain what the RoboBee project is and what is the motivation behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So the RoboBee is a tiny robotic insect. So we're inspired by bees, the biology of bees and their behavior. And we try to build a small sub 100 milligram vehicle that can take off and fly around in a confined environment. So everything is done inside of a motion capture arena. But we're trying to understand a little bit of how um, you get things to fly at this scale and what you need to get on board in order to control them and stuff like that. I see. Wow, sounds like a very technical, challenging problem with the scale of uh, autonomous flying robot at the insect level. No, absolutely. We had to do a lot of work in actually figuring out how we were going to build something at this scale. So, you know, we're really good at building things at the meter scale, like, you know, with nuts and bolts, hammers and screws, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're really good at building at the micron scale, like all the ICs and the chips in our phones. But you know, there's this window in the centimeter scale where you actually have to, you know, think about what you're going to do. So we did a lot of work in figuring out exactly, you know, how we were going to build the transmissions and what kind of actuators we were going to use and how we were going to flap the wings. So a lot of that went into it. Right, right. Wide, wide ranges. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Different difficulties. Um, so, so I guess um, just to back up a little bit, what would be the like main motivation for building these robotic bees? Is it just for demonstrating we can do this technologically? Do you imagine applications beyond mm-hmm. robotics? Yeah, no. So I guess primarily when we think about it in the short term, we're thinking about how do we build these things? How do we actuate them? How do we power them? And the challenges exactly at the centimeter scale. 
Um, and then thinking about applications many, many years down the road, you know, anything where you want a lot of information very quickly. So it's either unsafe for humans to go or you don't want to wait for a larger robot to slowly move through the environment. Yeah. Um, so environmental monitoring, search and rescue applications, um, crop pollination is uh, one that people sometimes discuss with us. Um, things of that nature where you want like a distributed sensor network that's also a little bit more dynamic in the environment than just static pods. Um, and then other things that we can do in the immediate term is think about the the technologies that we develop for RoboBee can be applied to other technologies like crawling robots or medical devices, things where you want them to be small and easily inserted into the body. Um, and then I really enjoy this project also because it makes people excited about, you know, robotics and engineering and STEM. And so if I can get more people interested in what we do, then that's always a win. Right, right. That's really awesome. That's not, definitely not what you like think about traditionally when you mentioned it's like robotics and yeah, no, yeah it's, it's always the... fun making people or when people are surprised about what we do. Right, right. Um, so what are the exact like actuators and sensing mechanisms on board the current yeah. RoboBee? Yeah, so the RoboBee uses two piezoelectric bimorph actuators. And so piezo ceramics are uh, materials that contract when you apply an electric field, so when you apply a high voltage across them. Um, and if you put two of these materials together with a conductive layer in the middle, you can mm -hmm. actually get them to bend back and forth if you apply a sinusoidal voltage. Um, and so that kind of gives us the back and forth motion, which mm -hmm. we then transmit through a transmission mechanism, and that gives us our flapping motion. And then we have a passive wing hinge at the base of the wing that then gives us uh, a little bit more of the wing pitching um, that you see. Okay. And so when we actually flap at the high frequencies that we do to fly, which is about 165 hertz, you get the nice wing pitch, wing stroke motion that you expect to see. Nice, very cool. And how does that compare to the like physical or biology of the of an, a bee, essentially? Is it the same yeah, so we're flapping, flapping frequency? A, or? We're flapping a little bit faster than bees, um, but there's a wide range um, when you're thinking about like flapping wing insects. They can go you know, anywhere from very low frequencies like moths and butterflies all the way up to you know hundreds of hertz which is about gnats so somewhat based on scale but not fully okay and that was determined i guess through experimentation or modeling on, or yeah that's more based on some like non-linear resonance modeling that we did of the system and so that's our resonance point for the vehicle that we have and so we operate there because it is the most efficient place to operate. Gotcha. Totally mm -hmm. makes sense to maximize efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, what about in terms of like sensing for navigation? How does it know yeah. uh, where it is at or yeah. where it wants to be? So right now we don't have any permanent sensors on board the vehicle. We okay. have put um, IMUs, inertial measurement units, um, so that's like a mix of gyroscopes, accelerometers, and magnetometers so that it can sense its own state, its own orientation mm -hmm. uh, in the world. We've also done a little bit with proximity sensors, some small low resolution cameras so that it can better sense its velocity. So that kind of is mimicking what 
bees use with optic flow. So they're actually able to sense um, their velocity as they're landing on a flower or landing, um, you know, in their hive. They're able to sense exactly how close they're getting to a space based on that trajectory. Um, we've done a little bit with light sensors, like the Ocelli, those, that's another bio-inspired sensor. Um, and I think that that's all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Sounds like a lot of inspiration yeah, from biology. Uh, some inspiration from biology, some just from like other aircraft, like IMUs and proximity sensors are pretty standard in the industry. We're, you know, a lot of what we're able to do is possible because of, you know, just the advent of the cell phone industry and watches. Like there are a lot right. of things that we can now buy off the shelf that we don't have to make ourselves. And so we're in that nice area. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, definitely good when not everything is from scratch yeah Yeah. custom made a lot more time for the robustness level to be developed absolutely (laughs) i'm happy if somebody else works on these small sensors so that i don't have to build them (laughs) and make sure that they work all the time right but i guess applying things directly off the shelf i imagine there must be additional like challenges for your particular application at the insect scale yeah, so, um, I mean, it's definitely hard to find things yeah. off the shelf. And okay. some things that, you know, other, like, quadrotors can use because they're slightly larger, we can't use. This is a big problem when you're thinking about power sources. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing commercially available that we can put on board. Um, and some other things like pressure sensors or sonar, like, those chips are actually quite heavy when thinking about how large our RoboBee is, because, again, it's only 90 milligrams, so if right. you want to put anything on board, you have to be really careful about how much weight you're adding. Right, gotcha. Would you say the main challenges with the RoboBees are, like, efficiency and the weight constraints, or...? It's definitely weight and size constraints when thinking about what you're going to put on board the vehicle. So a lot more limited. Oh, so very, very, very limited. (laughs) Because you think about, like, the smallest commercially available battery is probably three times as large as our robot entirely. Yeah. So even if our, I guess, the latest generation of our robot is 90 milligrams and, you know, can carry over 200 milligrams, which is incredible for, you know, something that's small, but it's still not enough to carry a battery. And, you know, if we want to think about, okay, we need to generate these high voltage signals for our actuators, we're going to need some electronics to do that, step up converters and transformers, so that cuts into our payload. We're going to need a microcontroller so that it's going to be able to both generate these signals and take in any sensor information, that adds some weight. You need sensors on board as well, that's going to add some weight and power. And so thinking about all of these things is really what I've been focusing on while I've been here wow yeah definitely sounds like a phd level and beyond <laughs> challenge yeah, in the no. story it'll uh, be hard it'll, yeah it, it started before i came and it will continue after i leave. <laughs> i guess like tying into like your recent breakthrough with the first untethered flight how does yeah. like would you like to walk us through that development process and yeah absolutely. i imagine it follows with the weight and power constraints a lot (laughs) yeah so we have been trying to figure out exactly how to get RoboBee out of the lab and into the environment and we didn't quite get there but this was a really big breakthrough in that it was the first time that we were able to fly the vehicle without the power and signal tether so Mm -hmm. in 2012 we um, had the first 
controlled flight of a vehicle at this scale, but everything that happened happened inside of a motion capture arena and it was also tethered for signals and power. So there was a controller off board and it was sending all of the information that was necessary to the bee. I see. Um, Can you briefly describe how the controller worked? Yeah, so there are motion capture cameras that track the position and orientation of the vehicle at all times. So it gives us information in about 500 hertz. This information is then um, fed to an adaptive uh, controller that controls the attitude, altitude, and um, ver uh, sorry, horizontal position and velocity of the vehicle. Um, and so taking all that information we're able to keep the vehicle stably upright, so preventing it from pitching and rolling too much. Um, and then we can also keep it fixed at an altitude. Uh, it can hover in place, it can follow a trajectory. Um, if we add an additional layer to the controller, so an, like an iterative learning step, we can actually get it to follow more interesting trajectories, like pitch the bottom half of its body up and land on its side. Um, so things like that. That's basically how it works. But while doing all of this, it had to be tethered for power. There wasn't anything else on board. It couldn't sense its own state and it couldn't sense the environment and it also couldn't carry anything on board. Right. Um, so my colleague who was my co-author on the paper, Noah Jaffris, did a lot of work to actually uh, improve the vehicle design mm -hmm. so that it could carry so much more weight. And yeah. so the big breakthrough with that was um, not only uh, in the actuator design, which allowed us to generate more force, um, but in order to get to this latest generation, we first had to increase the force that we were able to generate in the vehicle. Okay. Um, in terms of lift? In terms of lift force. Okay. So in that 2012 paper, what happened was we had an 80 milligram vehicle that could only carry 40 milligrams on board. So we're talking one sensor. Um, not nearly enough to carry all the signal generators necessary. So that is about 100 milligrams spec. Um, and power supplies, you're again thinking about 100 milligrams. So you need a vehicle that can carry both its own weight and 200 additional milligrams. Mm -hmm. um, and so that vehicle didn't work. And so my colleague Noah Jaffris did a lot with um, improving the vehicle design, specifically the actuator and transmission design, which allowed us to increase the force production of the vehicle. But the problem with that is, is that power is is linearly related to force. So P okay. equals F times V. V is the velocity of your wings. And so in order to not increase our power by so much by increasing our force, we needed to find a way to slow the wings down. And the big breakthrough that we just had was that we switched from a two-wing vehicle to a four-wing vehicle. So each of the wings moves through a smaller area and thus flaps slower. I see. The so those one. are the piezoelectric actuator so the ways piezo over. So the piezoelectric actuators are our muscles. Okay. They can generate more force, but we have two polyester wings that are attached to those actuators. And so the wings themselves, we just had two wings in total, one actuator for each wing. Now we have one actuator controlling two wings. So we have okay. four wings total. And so each wing is actually flapping through a smaller area, which allows us to flap more slowly. And so that, so with that, we were able to um, fly with significantly more lift force without increasing our power by that much. Cool. Yeah. Fantastic. 
Yeah, so with that, we were able to integrate very small onboard electronics. Um, it's something called a um, flyback converter, uh, bi-directional flyback converter. And so that takes us from our four volt input from a battery or solar cells, the, the electronics are agnostic to whatever supply we are using. Um, it takes us from the four, four volts to a 200 volt unipolar uh, time varying signal. What, what, what does that mean at a high level? <laughs> so basically we need 200 volts in order to generate the electric field. We mm -hmm. don't want it to go negative because we don't want to depole the actuators. We want them to bend in the direction that we want. And it's time varying because we want to get that back and forth motion that we were seeing before. Okay. Um, so those were the main constraints. So it's so thinking about how to generate that, there are a couple of topologies uh, of circuits that you can look at. And we selected the bi-directional flyback converter because of its low weight and high efficiency. Um, and then we selected solar cells as our uh, power supply because the batteries that you buy off the shelf are just too heavy for what we want to do. And solar cells actually benefit from the uh, surface area to volume scaling, like as you decrease, um, you can get a much, much larger area. And so we did that. And we were able to get these incredible flights where the bee took off and flew for the first time untethered. And we were all very, very excited about it. <laughs> that sounds super exciting. I saw a video of that and it just looked really cool. Yeah, I yeah. know. It took so long to actually get it to work. It was incredible. So that by the time it actually flew, I was not expecting it. And I was standing right over it just in case like it flew outside of the area or was going to crash land. I was kind of there to just monitor it and it got really close to me. And so I was very nervous about what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it must be like mixed emotions, all the excitement. And a little, and so a little much bit. excitement, so much stress. <laughs> I think I like left for the day and went out and probably went to the movies or got french fries. <laughs> Drink <laughs> so I imagine there must have been like a lot of testing before like this big oh, moment. Absolutely. Were there any like bees that got broken along the way or any most like memorable I mean, days bees, that led up to this? Bees definitely degraded over time. Okay. So like when you're constantly driving them at their peak condition, eventually mm -hmm. things will wear down. And so you know, we kind of kept running up against the wall of things should have worked, like with the mass that we had put on and they just weren't. And eventually we realized that the bee degraded. Uh, I definitely probably blew up a couple of the transformers. Chips definitely died oh as we were going. Not when everything was connected. We did everything very sequentially. So we tested the bees separately with dummy masses. We tested the circuit separately with, you know, capacitors and resistors, things that mimicked what the actuators look like electrically. Um, and so once everything came together, there were a couple of scare moments where, you know, it seemed like the bee was going to run into a wall or get too close to the light mm -hmm. because we're not quite at one sun. So we have lights that are currently mimicking approximately two and a half to three suns um, in order to power the vehicle. So it can actually get quite warm under there. And so we were always worried, like, what happens if glue is going to melt? But Luckily, everything stayed together and we were fine. Right. So does that mean that the solar cells need to be charged for a while before this no, autonomous? 
No, the like, cells themselves don't need to be charged at all. As soon as the light turns on, everything just starts. Okay. Um, it's more that the power that we're delivering to the cell needs to be slightly more than the thousand watts per square meter that we typically think of as one sun. It's okay. just that the cells themselves need to deliver about 150 milliwatts to the vehicle um, based on the efficiency of the cells. So gotcha. that's all. I see. Yeah. Very interesting. So I guess like in terms from of like next steps, would you have other thoughts of bringing this out to yeah, the no. real world? What, what would be the next steps look like and what would be some potential challenges? Yeah, so I think that there are a couple of things that we're interested in looking into. The first is, you know, is there anything that we can do to increase the efficiency of the electronics, um, change the mass of the actual system so we can decrease it and increase its power output so you know maybe using the same vehicle we could put more cells on board mm -hmm. um so things of that nature hopefully then with more cells we're able to get down to you know closer to one sun not quite um other things thinking about you know scaling up the vehicle slightly not to be too big because mm -hmm. then you know the actuators will also have to enlarge will increase our power will deal with all the same trade-offs that we were dealing with before um and then the other things that we're interested in is you know everything that we did here it wasn't able to sense its environment it was just supposed to take off and fly um upright and we were able to do that by playing with some tricks of centering the center of mass and the center of pressure very close to each other. So it was able to stably take off um, upright for a long period of time. Right. Um, if we want to actually get outside, then we have to go back to, you know, what sensors are we going to put on board? How is the microcontroller going to run all these operations at the same time? How yeah. are we going to control the vehicle? So those are all things that we're doing next. I see. Like a whole suite of robotics challenges for yep. the next level. But exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's all about mechanical design, electrical design, controller design, all these things have to come together. And that's the fun thing about robotics is that it's, you know, the mixture of all of these things. It takes so many people from so many different disciplines. And so I learned so much just from interacting with everybody on the team. Right, right. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It kind of leads to my, like, some of the next questions of oh, okay. what are the main things <laughs> you learned through this journey or the most rewarding yeah. moments um, as you pursue research in this field yeah no it's definitely been interacting with you know all the people not only on this team but on the other micro robotics teams that we have in the lab um, the challenges are slightly different but you know just thinking about the way different people approach problems and how they need to debug and um, go through these steps is always an important thing and has made me a better researcher in doing it. Um, and then the other thing that has, again, just been the most rewarding is uh, I've done a lot in thinking about how to use these robots as outreach tools. Um, and so we've designed a couple of uh, museum exhibits so that we can get you know kids excited about right. uh, the RoboBee and the project. Mm -hmm. and, you know, thinking about all the things that need to go into it. So how do you design? How do you code? Um, how do you think about these weight and power trade-offs? And so getting younger kids interesting in STEM is always something that has excited me. And so I'm grateful for this platform to get other people excited. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I know it's been like exhibited at the Museum of Science and I imagine a few yeah. other places. No, yeah, so Museum of Science is the most permanent one. It was actually the first one that I did. It's also been at the World Economic Forum. It's been at the London Museum of Science. It's in Ireland right now. Oh, wow. I think Boeing has one. Smithsonian did a touring exhibit. Um, if you're ever in New Zealand, the Tapapa uh, Museum has a huge bug lab. Um, I think it's still there. So, yeah, it's all over the world. <laughs> wow, very cool. Huge impact in all aspects. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. Um, yeah, maybe the final question is, like, would you have any, like, advice for early PhD students or as, as students go through similar <laughs> challenges and moments of frustration? How did you, like, stick to it? <laughs> I think I was able to stick to it because I knew that I absolutely wanted to be doing it. That even though um, I think the majority of my days, I do not like my robot. Like <laughs> the RoboVee presents like such a, a, a suite of challenges that most of the time I am just like, why did I pick this? Why did I do this? It's so hard. But then, you know, when everything finally pays off, like, it just brings me, you know, so much happiness to say that, you know, I did this, I worked mm -hmm. on this, and, you know, I was able to do it, so, um, I knew going into it that this is what I wanted to be doing, uh, and so if you can say that about your project, even though, you know, most days you're not totally happy about what you're doing, mm -hmm. then stick with it, and it's going to be great eventually. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Yeah. 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 Well, congrats again on like the recent accomplishments and uh, really appreciated how you um, shared how I uh, like shared from like a wide mix from technical details of your research as well as like personal challenges and victories. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Love talking about it. <laughs> cool. Well, okay. thanks again. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you're a regular listener and enjoy our content, check out robohub.org forward slash podcast to find out more about how you can support us on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, the price of a cup of coffee, you can become a podcast patron, helping us to continue covering the latest from robotics labs, manufacturers and conferences around the world. We'll be back in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. RoboBee with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.